Welcome back to Gale Force Winds Season 2. The Gale Force Winds Podcast is proudly sponsored by Newfound Marketing, a digital marketing agency located in St. John's, Newfoundland. Visit our website at newfoundmarketing.ca to find out how we can help your business grow. Newfound Marketing, a compliment to your marketing team. Yeah, that looks pretty good. I was going to get a fern, but then I didn't have two. <laughs> fern. Who was in that? That was... Uh, Caliphus. Oh, that was Caliphus so good. Or how do you pronounce it? Oh, uh, yeah, that was Between so good with Obama. Ferns? Oh, it was so funny. What a great name. <laughs> anyway... Well, folks, here we are. This is Gale Force Winds. I am missing my partner today. We had a very busy weekend, and uh, he went back to PEI. Trying to get this individual that's sitting here, I'll introduce him in a second, but uh, trying to get him on for a while, and you know, schedules, travel, this, that. So here we are. I'm gonna go and do it myself, <laughs> but I'm really interested in Kevin Casey. He is a guy that's done a lot of very interesting things, and I know he's gonna be reluctant to talk about himself, but I want you to go ahead and introduce yourself, and we'll go from there, Kevin. Thanks, Jerry. Well, maybe your partner wanted you to go on a solo mission with me. Maybe he didn't want to be here, so I've Hold done... Hold on, i got to clean you up first. I've, oh. done, I've done that to a room before. <laughs> um, listen, you know, Newfoundlander, born and bred, um, been here my whole life, except for two years in Halifax. Like anyone, um, went to Munn because I didn't even know there was another choice of a university. You're just told to go to Munn. I wasn't even told to go where at Munn. I just went to Munn, and then I figured out I'm not smart enough for medicine. It's too much work. I'll miss way too much breezeway time. Uh, I'm not smart enough for medicine. I'm really bad at math, so engineering was out. So I picked business school uh, and psychology, every psychology elective, because I loved that piece of it. And, you know, profs like Gary Gorman and Tom Clift let me realize there was a path for me because at Munn, the beaten path was to the breezeway and I wasn't productive for a lot of time. We're going to go down that road and you already told me that that's okay. And yeah, it's on the table. Totally that's okay. the good thing about being in your 50s. And yeah, on the table. people don't want to hear about all the good things. I mean, I said it's okay to blow up some bombs here. Well, prior to university, I want to go back even further. Um, <laughs> you know, I was lucky enough to meet your mom and dad. And uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, growing up. Tell me a little bit about your family. Uh, and then I want to zero in on your mom and dad. Yeah, well, you know, mom was, uh, there was four, four people in our family. So typical family, like there was no families of one or two then. It was always four or bigger. And... Um, you know, my mom actually, when I was, I was the youngest, so when I was 13, mom basically said, I'm done. Like, I'm done now, and you guys can all handle putting the craft dinner on by yourself. And she decided to go in real estate with Tom Byrne Real Estate back then. And we thought mom was just going through this crisis because no one knew how to cook. We didn't know how to do anything. We relied on mom for everything. Had she worked prior to that? Nothing. She was a medical secretary and in 1978, when she made this decision, it was bold, right? Wow. And um, she loved homes. My mother would go to open houses when she wasn't looking at houses because she just loved homes and liked to see how people lived and, and evolved. So when, we were when I was 13, she decided to do it. And uh, we thought it was just maybe just a short stint she was going through. And... Uh, she became one of the best real estate agents uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Tom Byrne gave her her start. We all thought it was a phase. And I think that's when I realized uh, sales and entrepreneurship 
came in the form of my mother, which was so strange because she went from the one disciplining us to almost being the first person I saw that did something hugely uncomfortable and took a chance when not a lot of females were making that stride into the business world. And I got to watch my mom doing it. And uh, it was amazing. And she's the one that kind of made sure I went to university and didn't get distracted by some of the other things that were distracting me at the time. You know, you know what I love about what we're doing is that I've known you for a long time, but I don't know you. Right. And I met your mom probably around that time yeah. uh, because I went to school with your brother. But, you know, I always saw your mom as this just incredibly dynamic person. Yeah. Until this moment right now, I had no idea that that was the evolution of her work. Yeah. We thought it was a... Uh a moment then my dad uh god bless him because i know you lost your mom in 2020 my dad um he was like the factory worker right so dad never took a chance and i love him dearly and i miss him but he came from the factory mindset where you show up at 8 30 you work till 4 30 you take a half hour lunch you come home read the paper you have your dinner and it happens year after year after year and I saw my mom being an entrepreneur, and I didn't even know what that word meant, by the way. And I saw my dad being this amazing human being that I loved, but he was scared of every chance I took in my lifetime until he passed away. Because right until his last breath, even though at that point I felt like I was successful in my life, he said, are you okay? Yeah. Because I always colored outside the lines. And I remember in the early days of Idea Factory, when he came down and saw a pool table, and he saw a CFO that had a baseball hat on and sneakers, he went home and said, I think Kevin is selling drugs. I think he's in a drug business. And uh, he just didn't believe accountants could look like that, and he didn't believe people could wear jeans into work, and what is a pool table doing in an office? So I had two different parents that were incredible, but completely different. And maybe I hope I got parts of both, because I love both of them. There's so much to explore with you, Kevin, um, just to, to go down that road a little bit. But your dad, look, I think not everyone's meant to be an entrepreneur. We talk about mm. entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, Oof. entrepreneurship. Alan and I feature a lot of entrepreneurs. I think it's okay to be entrepreneurial in an organization. God knows I did it for 30 years. Yeah. I call myself a semipreneur. I yeah. love the respect you have for your dad and I watched the posts you made, the pictures, and you were just living life with the man and, and, and yeah. I'm sorry that he's passed away, but it was heartfelt to see what you were posting about him, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, I think part of that is, um, you know, you go through so many years that you, you're a nuisance. And I was at, 17 year old at 25 you know we were a nuisance and you know I have two brothers that were nuisances and I had a sister that was a saint um, a little bit with my dad is because he didn't need as much attention as my mom because mom was so strong and I think with my dad I took him to places that he could never really do in the factory style career that he had and he didn't get to go to the Royal York in Toronto. And I remember I took him there and at 10 o'clock one night, and this is only in 2017, he, he realized there was a menu in the room that you could order nachos. And 
I've traveled my whole life, so it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, it's room service. Like, it's like oxygen. I, yeah. I didn't even think it was a big deal. I said, Dad, let's get the nachos. Like, cool. And the next morning, I could see he wasn't himself. And I thought, God, maybe he's not feeling well. Mm -hmm. And what he saw was the bill that came for the nachos. That was $48. And he felt like he took advantage. And he said, this is ridiculous. They ripped us off. And I said, Dad, they were the best nachos <laughs> I've ever had because they were with you and they were worth every cent of it. Well, <clears throat> I'm just getting a little emotional here now because you can't help but reflect on your own family when you talk about that. Um, it's interesting, Kevin, how your evolution from a uh, young man to uh, a worker, university. Let's go back to university first. <laughs> so you're in university. I think it's important, and when you and I talked a little bit about this prior to, we're Gale Force wins, but not everything is about winning. Oh my God. There is a lot of fall flat on your face. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your experience in university because you've admitted that you fell flat on your face and it was your yeah. fault, no one else's. Right? Yeah, we'll do some Gale Force loses <laughs> and losses. Gale Force failures. Failures, that's good. I think you know people need to hear that part of it. Uh, you know, I've got a daughter that's 20 now in second year of Mun and she probably has only seen me being a business person that's relatively successful. And I had to remind her now and then, because she didn't really believe me until other people verified it, that I had a horrible start at Mun. I mean, I went in there the first year because I was told to go there. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to live in the moment, and I failed out of university completely. I had I didn't even write final exams in my second semester. And you know, back then mom was such a protector of our brand of a family. No one even talked about it. Like I don't think any of my uncles or cousins knew that I failed out. They must have thought I had like, you know, some kind of long flu or something. <laughs> and I went to work at McDonald's for a year full time, which was actually a really good lesson in life, by the way, also. Uh but you know, I got to remind my own daughter, like, it's okay to fail. Yeah. I actually, and maybe it's because I failed a lot it, at times, I actually learn more from failures and I take more away from it than the times I've had wins. And it's not that I don't enjoy the wins. I just don't think I learn as much and it actually makes me feel comfortable. And I think when I'm uncomfortable, I do my best work and I perform at my best but I've got to remind my daughter, you're not supposed to have it figured out at 20. No. I hardly had it figured out at 30. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah, I made the mistake of telling my youngest that I moved out of my mom's house when I was 29. Because he's 15 now and I'm right. reminding him, you got to keep moving. But uh, I told my nephew the other day you know, that I failed out of the Navy. And uh, he couldn't believe it. Yeah. And I, it's interesting because he said to me, he said, I can't believe that. But I think part of the problem we all have is that we're trying to put our best foot forward all the time. And, I mean, you know, you go to a family dinner and start talking about the fact that you failed out of university, it's probably not going to be that popular. Like, no one wants to hear that stuff. But in a setting like this, I think it's important. And when you're trying to coach your children or your nephew, your yeah. niece, whatever, right? Well, Gary Gorman would know this, but, you know, when I go back and speak to university classes, which it's very ironic to go back in the business school when you barely scrape by. I mean, I, I graduated with a 68 or 69 average. Um, but when I go back in the business school now, I look around the room and I almost can see myself in that middle row 
not even sure what I am, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And my message of that group, because their prof probably introduced me as a successful entrepreneur, I fall on the sword early. I say, is anyone here struggling with a 65 to 70 average and yeah. you feel like you're kind of lost? And no one puts up their hand. And then I kind of say, because I sat in that seat and I want to let you know if you are struggling and you got a 68 average now, you're going to be just fine. Because you're going to find your way out of this. Yep. And the people at times that were 90 and 95% students, it all came too easy to them. And they weren't used to failing. But the people that get used to some of these failures early, I actually think it makes a stronger and you know we've got one child and sometimes I worry that are we letting her fail enough or as parents now are we trying to protect our kids I can tell you my mom and dad were too busy we failed because they didn't have time to watch out for all of us yeah. but I actually think failures are okay and even with my team now at Caligro I encourage failing forward that's different than failing failing forward but if you don't you're stuck in neutral funny you know talking about business I did a business degree as well and there's times when in sales you have the ability to be all over the city yeah. and if I didn't have any meetings a certain time I would actually go back and walk the halls wow. of yeah. the building and I'm not sure you know it's only a building but I think the thoughts that were generated there and the the energy that yeah. we had right. as young people the uh, I guess you're looking towards the future and now you know you fast forward 20 years and you're out there I just found it really fulfilling to be able to go back I have actually sat in the chair some because a lot of times the offices or the uh, classrooms are empty and you just sit yeah, there have no. you ever done that <laughs> I have done that and Tom Cliff knows that because Tom was a great prof of mine it's like when you go back there there's a little piece of you just wants to connect with the person that was Kevin Casey back then yeah so I look for, among a sea of students, I look for somebody that's not telling me what's going on, but I know the signs because I was that person that was in the mushy middle. Yeah. I call it the mushy middle because you're there, but you're not there. I didn't participate very much in the whole co-op thing. I just want to get out of university and work. But I go back now and I want to remind those people it's totally okay because you're going to figure it out um, and it's just not linear and it was never linear for me even though I wanted it to be linear I actually think I'd be totally bored yeah. if it was linear and maybe it's part of what uh, I like is the fact that I'm not taking a straight line ever between A and B and I think it drives people crazy around me but it makes it interesting. Were you in the non-co-op program by chance? I did. Yeah, I did that would. as well. You remember we used to try, we tried to change the name of that. Because imagine you're going in to talk to <laughs> yeah. employers, a young yeah. person. Yeah, I'm part, I graduated from the uncooperative un program yeah, at Mon. That's I what know. we used to joke. Yeah. But anyway, I think uh, the, 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 you're right. A straight line is no fun, you know? Yeah, straight line is the worn path. And I, um, I think, you know, what I like to see is the solutions that aren't prescribed in a textbook and most of what I've learned in business as good as the business school was and it was great uh, it's all been after yeah. you know all the bumps and bruises after right and uh, that's where I really learned and some of them were really hard lessons well I'm gonna just back it up again you went to McDonald's you spent a year okay you've already failed 
in university. Yeah. Okay, you did a year in, in McDonald's. Why did you go back to Mon? What what happened? What motivated you huh. to say to yourself, I'm going to yeah. give this another shot? Yeah, so uh, obviously the, you know, the family secret that no one talked about is I failed out of Mon, which is okay now, uh, 25 years later. Uh, I went to work at McDonald's because I was working there part-time. Keith King owned it then. He was so good to me, uh, along with some other people. And when I got there, they wanted me to go full-time as a manager because I was kind of what they called a swing manager back then. And I had no expenses back then, right? So now I can afford the 86 Ford Tempo with the Alpine stereo that was worth more than the car. Um, and I was making like six or $700, and all my friends were in university, and they never had any money, and they were miserable, but I was out on a Tuesday and Wednesday night, and it almost trapped me. Yeah. It almost trapped me, and I almost said yes, and not that it would have been the wrong decision, uh, because, you know, Kathy Bennett ended up going, she was there when I was there, and she owned a bunch of McDonald's, so maybe I could have owned McDonald's, who knows. But uh, a very special guy there, Sean Burke, and Sean passed away a few years ago, and he left university two courses short of his degree, and I was ready to sign on, and Sean looked at me, and he said, Kevin, go back to school. Really? Yeah, and he said, not that you wouldn't do well here, but you need to go back to school. This is not going to be the place for you forever. And I give Sean Burke, who died much too young and passed away, I give him credit for pushing me back because Keith King wanted me to stay and maybe it could have went well, but I'm, I'm glad he pushed me. We're going to delve into that in a minute, uh, mentors, and I know you've got, mm. you've got a lot. Yeah. Um, that's a great story. I play hockey with his brother, actually, Steve. I know, uh, Steve, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, we have a great, great rivalry sometimes. Yeah. But so you go back to school. You're sitting there, and are you digging in? Oh, I am. First of all, uh, the reason why hairlines like it is is because hair nets at McDonald's do a lot of damage to your hair. So I knew that uh, with Sean Burke's uh, message to me, when I went back, I was literally treated like a 100-yard dash. I did six. I got permission to do seven courses once, and I went all out, and I actually wanted to beat the people that were with me when I got kicked out. Yeah. So I was on a path to get in and out. I went hard at it. I took it seriously. And I did much better because I was focused. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was the best one of the best decisions I made. But again, you need these little mini mentor moments. You don't even know these people are mentors in your life until you thank them years later. Like Sean didn't know what he did for me then until he was passing away and I told him. Wow. This is powerful. Um, <clears throat> so you would graduate from university and you take a job. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, gosh, yeah, graduate, you know, I think, you know, mom was still telling us at that point, do a resume and here's where to send it. I mean, we're basically, you're, you're 20 years old, but you're completely useless in many yeah. ways, right? Um, and she's got 20 years sales on her belt at this point. Yeah, I suppose, she's right? just trying to connect you with the right people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Gary Wadden into M5 and um, Mark Kiley, who worked with him back then in the research, I got a call one day that they need some help in that, and I just took the job. I didn't even know what it was. I just said yes. 
And, you know, then I spent six years at M5, and it was incredible time in my life. And I realized then that I loved marketing and sales, and that's what I wanted to do. And Gary Wadden gave me a chance uh, to do it. You know, he had me stuck down in research for a long while, and then I just felt like all the action, all the madman stuff was on the advertising yeah. side. And I had no accounts. I had nothing. And no one wanted to really work with me as an account executive. So I was by myself, and he gave me an office, and he said, go look for business. And uh, that's what but I did. But you were doing research, and he saw something in you, and then said, go look for business? Yeah. He just, I knew that I wanted to do business development. Yeah. I was not a guy to study SPSS tables and chi-square analysis. Like, it was going to, I was going to die under a pile of paper. <laughs> uh, so I just said, Give me a chance. And I yeah. had no plan, and Gary gave me a chance. And I just um, proved myself, and I got hungry. And, you know, I grew with Gary then for the next six years until I went to work with Labatt in 1998. Yeah, I met you in 98. Actually, back then I was doing a few videos for you. Yes, you were. <laughs> on That's VHS right. tape. VHS tape. Got them all out. God. I'll show you after. They're all out in a room out here, about 300 VHS tapes. You can fit them all on a USB Yeah, now. of course. But so M5, fertile entrepreneur, that, that, like they weren't a startup then, but they, he must have been pretty new. What were they, maybe yeah. five years in business I when you joined I think probably 17 or 18, but I didn't know, again, what the difference was between a startup and a mature business. I was just glad to have a job. And I was just amazed how Gary became this tough mentor, by the way, tough guy. Like he... One of these guys that tells you, there's lots of these people I have. Charlie Oliver's another one, right? The people that tell you what you don't want to hear are the people you need as mentors. We don't need cheerleaders. I'm yeah. telling you, like, cheerleaders give us a dopamine hit. The mentors that truly care about you tell you the stuff that no one else will tell you, including your family. That's amazing. You know what? I've been in advertising for almost 35 years. I met Gary Wadden once, yeah. and that was about six months ago. Very quiet, unassuming guy. Yeah. But it's really, Kevin, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head there. You want to hear what you need to hear. And in sales in particular, if you're sitting there and you're not generating sales, there's nothing yeah. worse than that. And we'll, get, we'll delve into that a little bit more sure. in, in a minute. But so you go to Labatt's, uh, you're five, five, six years at uh, M5. You go to Labatt's and tell us about that. Well, you know, you get a job at Labatt and my father... You know, the factory. Is it Labatt or Labatt? Labatt, singular. Everyone Labatt. here calls it Labatt. I know, I know, Labatt. Uh, so back then, again, Dad would have, the message from my dad, who, you know, stayed in one job for, you know, two jobs in yep. 50 years, was like, son, do not mess this up. Yeah. I mean, you are now in the big leagues. And I was excited about it. Um you know, and I had four great years at Labatt. I mean, how do you not? You're, you're 28 years old, you got a company vehicle, and you got as many beer slips. I mean, I was the most popular guy that didn't have a friend. Um, so I did that for four years, and in 2001, I had one of these moments that's either going to take you from hero to zero. And um, I had one of these gun-to-the-head moments where I was either, you're going to have to move, to Toronto and take a brand job because that marketing role is not, not on Newfoundland anymore. Labatt was bought by wow. InBev. 
Uh, it was nothing personal. They had to make a decision. But when you're 31 and you're going around in the company vehicle and you're working with Labatt where you don't even need to buy clothes anymore. you got so many golf shirts yeah. and, and everything else. Um, I don't know why I didn't say yes, but again, I, I took the severance package. And I had six months severance. I was 31. How long did you have to make that decision? How, what, how much time did they give you? Uh, they were very good. I mean, they were very good. They, they probably would have given me weeks, but I didn't need weeks. There was something that I just did not want to get lost in Toronto in a brand job that I was just going to disappear. I felt like I was going to leave something on the table. And it probably wasn't, by the way, the easy decision. The easy decision was to accept the medicine and, and take it, but I didn't. Uh, and I didn't really have a plan, which, again, you know, again, I said, it's not, you're not supposed to have it figured out at 20, Olivia. Like, it's okay. I was 31 now, and I still don't have a plan. And there's a bit of an ego hit because people are like, you lost your job at Labatt. And you try to you know, put lipstick on it a bit, but you did lose your job. Yeah. And there's no easy way to say it, and you can talk about, well, they were bought by InBev, but you lost your job. So I'm 31, um, and somehow I connected with Ed Roach, who used to be with me at M5. And I knew Ed was doing freelance stuff on his own, and we just connected, and this was not part of the plan. Uh, I was going to just go look for a pharmaceutical sales job or something, like something that sounded easy and fun. Yeah. And they were all hot at the time because all my friends who were pharmaceutical reps were golfing all day and taking docs out. I said, that sounds like a next good step. Um, and I went to see Ed and we just created the idea factory like as we were sitting here. Like we had two or three names and we just created the idea factory. And... Uh, I put myself, and I told Ed this because I didn't take any salary the first uh, six months. And Ed was taking a very small salary. We had like a couple of clients. And I thought I was just going to do this till I found something. Honestly, it's like I had a knot in my gut every day. I went from Labatt to we were in Logie Bay in a basement. But there was something special brewing. I just couldn't figure it out. And, um, you know, I spent the next 16 years at a business that myself and Ed didn't even know we were going to start together. I've got a, you, you and I talked a little bit beforehand about how businesses form. So you're, 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 you've got a bit of a severance. Yeah. What I like digging into is the decision around that. Like entrepreneurs like yourself, and I'm not saying you glossed over it, but you kind of did. Like <laughs> you, you, you and Ed, like, did you pick up the phone? Like, did you see him somewhere? How how did that happen? And how did you both know that you were open to the path that you eventually took? It's so strange. Uh, Ed's brother, Mike, actually reached out to me. He said, you know, Ed's doing a whole bunch of design work with clients. And I know you're left Labatt. And you and him worked so well together at M5 together because we, we had a lot of fun at M5. And we won a lot of business. But it wasn't our business. Yeah. And I listened to Mike, and I just went down and visited. And a conversation like this just turned into, well, let's try to go after a project. And I had time, because I didn't have a job. I would say, was I looking for a job real hard? 
maybe not as hard as I should have been. And that's a little bit of ego gets in play then yeah. too. And uh, we won some projects together. And honestly, Jerry, the next thing I know, it was like 10 years later. I'd love to see. Do you still have that first proposal? Was oh. it actually in writing or well, did you? Again, I, I need to remind people who start businesses of what a startup looks like, right? Even this set, you know, behind the camera, it looks like the beginning of the idea factory. I mean, it's, I'll take a picture and it is it the way it is. Uh, this is true. Eddie had one of these machines that cuts paper, like you, you get the yep. blade and you put it down. We made business cards on the fly. We didn't order business cards from Dixon Company or Robinson Blackmore. Like we literally cut business cards as we went along. Were you the idea factory at this point? Was that the very first iteration of your business named yeah. the idea factory? Yeah, which we came up in, I'd say, less than an hour. It's amazing, isn't it? That you, The right name yeah. is, is important. You can really build on that. Well, what's funny is I don't even know if it was the right name at the time, but we just needed a name. Ironically, as I look back at it now, I look at the initials, what if, I-F, and what if I didn't make that decision? And I always thought the question to ask someone is, what if you don't do this? What if? And Idea Factory was one of those what if moments. And Ed and I, I mean, Ed was a very creative guy, probably one of the most creative human beings I've ever met. But he did not like selling. He did not like going to meetings. He's like, a quiet guy. I've quiet met guy. him many times. Very so quiet. I remember I said to Ed, if we're going to do this, we're going to have four meetings every day. And I remember, you know, we got him a few pairs of dress pants <laughs> so we could go out to meetings. You're going to have four meetings with him and no, clients? and clients. We're going out. You're taking them out? 100%. And he was okay with that? Well, no one else was doing that at the time. So yeah. one of the things that we figured out very early on is that we're going to take our weakness, which was our size, and we're going to turn it into a strength. So we knew exactly what type of client we were going to go after. We were going to go after the frustrated clients who were getting the C-level treatment at the big agencies. Not that it was right or wrong, but we had to pick a customer. And this is what I say to entrepreneurs now. What's the problem you solve and who do you solve it for? And we knew our only shop was to go after, I wasn't going after Fortis or, you know, Labatt Canada. I was going after people who were with the big agencies but were probably frustrated that they were getting handed off to the B and the C team. And we went in and said, by the way, here's us. There is no team to pass it on to. And if we don't do good work with you, we'll probably be out of business. Yeah. So you're going to get the best work. And we answer the phone. And so we started to go after frustrated agency clients and we started to get momentum. And I think part of what got us successful is that we didn't know what we didn't know. Mm. And when I say that, I mean, I think if we knew too much about what it takes to run a business, I would have never done it. Mm. But you're so brazen and you believe in yourself so much and you want to zag when the other agencies are zigging that... Um, you don't even know what a cash flow statement is. And, you know, I did it in university, I guess, but, like, you had to learn what that stuff is on the fly. Yeah. And I remember a mentor said to me, he said, get a credit line now. I'm like, no, we don't need a credit line. You're not going to be able to get a credit line when you need a credit line. 
So things are going good for you, ask for a credit line when you don't need it. And there's those little pieces of Frankenstein cobbled together advice that myself and Ed picked up along the way. Uh, but we were brazen back then too, right? So I remember when Durham Dobbin and Craig Dobbin got the Fog Devils, we weren't even invited to the pitch. And I said, unacceptable. How long were you in business when all that happened? My God, we Couple were in business four years. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, we were 34-year-old hockey fans with three employees. And three agencies got invited to the pitch because they had good credentials. I'm going to show my flip-flops That's now. good. And we didn't. And most people would just accept that. And my 34-year-old self couldn't. So I found somebody that knew Durham Dobbin, happened to be Charlie Oliver. And I said, Charlie, you're probably going to say no to me. But I can't believe we haven't been invited to the party. So how, like, how to, just so I know, this, this was a call for proposals? Yeah, a call for proposals. And they invited three agencies because they didn't want to put it out to everyone. And right. we were not invited. So Charlie goes, I know Durham. I'll see if I can get you 15 minutes. And I said, just give me 15 minutes. And I went back to the office and I said, guys, we are not going to win this by credentials against the big boys. Um, so we're going to have to build a hockey team now, like logo, mascot, jerseys, everything, down to the opening signage. And Durham Dobbin gave us 15 minutes on a Saturday. I walked up the stairs. It was him, Al McKinnon, Tom Williams from O'Day Earl, the lawyer. He was on the board. And Brad Dobbin, who I didn't know then. And it was a courtesy visit. We weren't even offered a cup of coffee. <laughs> they were having coffee, tea, breakfast, nothing, not even a water. Yeah. Because they were just doing us a favor. Yeah. I get it. It's a favor. And uh, basically, underneath our shirts, we had the logo created. We had the jerseys done. We had Scorch, who was the mascot, done. And their jaws dropped. They actually didn't even know how to react. I didn't know if it was a good reaction. It was either really, really good or we were so offensive that we'd never get a call again. And um, we showed them everything. Like we gave them everything, Jerry, the whole, the whole thing. And um, what was interesting is five minutes after we got to the bottom of the stairs, they didn't even meet with the other agencies. We were awarded the business. Just like that. Yeah, and that was one of those moments where, I don't know, at 54 now, would I be as brazen to do that? I hope I would. But part of what made us so good back then, and I think what makes entrepreneurs so good, is that they're totally unreasonable. And they got this chip on their shoulder when they feel like they should have a shot at it, and they're left out, that... I brought that to the business, and so did Ed for a long while. And I don't think that ever left me. And I can say at 54, maybe I'm not quite as got that much fire in the belly, but man, I still feel like I have a lot. And it scares me when I see people at 54 counting the days to retirement. I know. And I'm just saying, am I just this weird that I still got a lot of energy to do stuff? Do I want to be more selective? Yes. Do I want to beg and go up and not be offered a cup of coffee and pitch like that anymore? Maybe not. But man, 
the best memories of my life were as a startup when we were not sure if we could make payroll. Wow, what a fantastic story. I knew you won that contract. I had no idea, and I would say a lot of people don't know how that all unfolded. Yeah, but well, you know, again, Robin Short, God bless him, another guy gone too early. Robin, um, Robin did, and, and he was so proud that this unknown agency had the gonads to go up to the Dobbins and say, you should have invited us to the party. So Robin did a story on it. And again, it's always better for someone to talk about you than you, right? Yeah. So, like, thank you, Robin, and another one gone too early. Yeah. Fantastic story. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm, you know, being a sales and business development guy, I'm just totally taken by that. And I will say this to you is that I'm str I struggle still with um, when I lose business and I don't get it. Yeah. The paranoia, they're like, oh, what did I do wrong? Yeah, God. Yeah. Like, and I'm yeah. still like a dog with a bone. As much as I agree with you at this stage of my life, I don't necessarily want to be pitching everybody all right. the time like right. that. But when you are and you think you should get the business and you don't, yeah, it's hard. Like, talk a little bit about that. We're going to kind of morph a little bit into that, but about sales, because I mean, it's, yeah. it's an important topic. Well, let me say this. Um, even when I was successful relatively, I always said to myself, if my mother was a fly in the wall, would she like how I close that deal? And I can honestly say to you, there was lots of years I was not that proud of the way I sold. It was needy, aggressive. I would say you could smell my commission breath sometimes. I wasn't proud of it. And the problem is, and I say this, it's taken me a long while to figure out sales. The reason why prospects and people we do business with can't be truthful to us is that because they know we're salespeople and we will not go away and we will do anything to close a deal. And what is interesting about sales for me, and I think this is my message to the 31-year-old Kevin, and a lot of people who are like that is you've got to get comfortable with getting to know fast. I want to say that again. You want to get comfortable to getting to know fast. Because if you just start seeking the truth before seeking the sale, your life's going to be way better. You're going to burn way less sales calories. And you're going to allow a truthful environment for people to be comfortable saying no. So how I sell now is I don't have happy ears the size of Dumbo anymore <laughs> where I feel like I'm afraid to hear no. I actually start with assuming there's way more reasons for people not to buy from me than there is. And I front load all the objections that everyone's thinking about but no one's talking about. I bring them up early because that's the hardest thing to do as a salesperson. And when you do that to someone, Jerry, if I was here trying to sell you something now, and I literally explicitly tell you, Jerry, I'm not even sure if I can help you, but if this isn't sticking, I want you to be comfortable telling me no. Are you okay with that? Yeah. You got to give people a way out. And you've got to do that six or seven times throughout the conversation. Because most people, when they say, I want to think it over, they're just being polite. And Atlantic Canadians were really nice and you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. 
So when people say to me, let me think it over, I just say, can I be blunt with the jury? What you really mean, I think, is that you're being polite. Yeah. And I get that, but I want to let you know I can handle no, and that's probably what you mean, right? And they'll go, yeah, it's just not the right time. No problem. And it takes all the tension out of the conversation. Yeah. So selling to me is now been a case of the opposites. It's like that George Costanza Seinfeld episode where, you know, George is saying his whole life, everything he's done is wrong. And then Jerry says, well, if everything you've done doesn't work, if you do the complete opposite, then it'll work. And he goes over to this lady at the bar that was looking over and he said, hi, my name is George. I'm single. I live with my mother and I'm unemployed. And because he was so radically honest, she said, hi, my name is Victoria. And he just did the opposite. So for me, now I don't seek the sale anymore. I seek the truth. Yeah. And I understand that I'm not selling a product. I'm trying to solve a problem. And not everyone wants that problem solved. Some people are okay with good enough. And when I started seeking the truth versus the sale, my life felt a lot better and the fly in the wall, which would be my mom or dad, they would say, I like the fact that you walked out of the room or you walked away from that sale and you didn't leave your dignity yeah. on the table. So it took me a long time, 15 years of selling the wrong way. You know, it's funny as you're talking to me and you're going to laugh at this. I've been 30 years in sales, 100% commission. All I could think about is my pipeline. Yeah and how much time I wasted for the managers above me because I had 150 in the pipeline yeah. and maybe 10 of them were actually substantial leads. The rest was a pile of bullshit yeah. that I never got to the no. Right. right. We, and it's, um, you can understand this, we are, we are scripted from our childhood not to be want to be rejected, right? And not to dare ask questions to someone of authority. Yeah. And think of even this thing of, as kids, like, don't talk to strangers. My God, in sales, you gotta talk to strangers. Uh, you know, person of authority, don't be rude, they're busy, don't bother them. We gotta bother people. So all of these scripting from your childhood, and then you saw someone, and I'll bring back my dad again. You know, dad was one of the nicest human beings on earth. I wish I could be as nice as my dad was um, dad was a liar. And how he was a liar is if a telemarketer called the house looking for mom when I was a kid, he would answer it and say, she's not here. Hang up. I said, dad, who's that? Oh, it's for your mother. It was telemarketer. But she's right here. So my point is, even my dad lies. <laughs> so everyone lies to salespeople. Yeah. So what you've got to do is actually let them know you're okay with the truth and you're not going to chase them around and you're not going to be uh, that person that nags. And the only way to do that is to flip the script on the way we sell and ditch the pitch. And it took me a long while. I burned so many sales calories that if I just had to start it that way, life would have been good. Those pipelines you talk about, most of those, and I was guilty of it, just like you were, they weren't leads. They were lies. Because <laughs> all you were doing was putting off the no. So is it better to get a no on day one yeah. or day 189? I'm telling you from a guy that got a lot on day 189, get over the, get the no fast. And 
understand that you need to give people permission to say no because generally humans are very nice and they don't want to hurt you even if you're a salesperson. Kevin, as you speak, I'm thinking about the value you know, you're going to provide as you morph into the next stage, and we'll get into that. But I think about the time and money wasted in a company, you know, the sales effort, the conversations around that pipeline. The pipeline is totally unwieldy, and it's full of lies. Yeah. Jesus, let's get rid of all the lies and delve into it, and how much prop more profitable will the company right. be? But, you know, you've got the problem is you've got a sales leader you know, that hasn't picked up a phone in 20 years, right. uh, who's got a quota that's coming from the CEO, and the pressure goes downhill. So my point is, if we don't act professional, how do you expect anyone to treat you as a professional? Right. And these sales reps, who I was one, fill their pipeline with fake leads because they just want to get through Friday session with the sales manager. I can tell you 54, I have a skinnier pipeline now, but it's true. And I know my conversion's high because I deal with all the no's fast. And I also accept that people aren't ready to buy when it's convenient for you. Like how foolish to think that I can predict when it's right for Jerry Crew to <laughs> yeah, buy. Yeah. But instead of showing up with commission breath and being irritated by that and trying to convince you I would just say, Jerry, it sounds like things are going pretty good right now. I think you're with someone that's taking good care of you. Would you mind if maybe once every couple of months I'll send you something that's interesting to your business? Uh, and you can delete it if it's no good, but I do this with my clients just to stay in touch. And by nurturing those people, some of the best wins I've had were in year three of nurturing. Salespeople only want to go after what's in their site and my point is you got to have a marketing part of your team that cares about the people who need to be warmed up while they're not buying because only 10 percent of people are buying when it's convenient for you what are you going to do the other 90 percent browbeat them yeah. with a hammer to buy no nurture them well it's interesting as you talk i'm talking thinking about my own career and you know transactional uh, advertising in yeah. a newspaper it's, I need an ad for Saturday, you know, yeah. so you, you know, it's very transactional. Then when I went into the agency world, I was talking to people that needed something in six months' time. And I, that, I will tell you, that was a struggle for me because yeah. it's like six months. I like, know. I'm used to six hours right. turnaround. Back to, uh, we're going to delve into the sales game, but I, I want to bring it back to um, the Idea Factory. You did that amazing pitch, won that business. Yeah. So you and Ed are there, you know, you've got a bank account. Have you incorporated, I guess, like, <laughs> how, at what point? Because I think this is something that a lot of people, I was a sole proprietor, Kevin, for 30 years. You asked me before you came on. That's totally different than having a partner yeah. and an incorporated company yeah. and all of the stuff that goes with that. I know you're smiling there, but I'm smiling this is a point a lot of people might find boring, but if you're an entrepreneur, it's uh, interesting, right? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, there is no... Maybe the courses have got better, but my Lord, um, there was nothing. I mean, honestly, someone had to tell us to incorporate. Someone had to let us know that what a cash flow statement was. Someone let it, had to let us know that we couldn't put every pizza we bought through Revenue Canada. We learned that the hard way. I mean, everything we learned, we just loved the business. And thank God we had people who are much wiser than us 
that were more like Spock that told us what to do and we had to do things a certain way. But you learn that the hard way. I mean, in my life now, I deal with agreements and NDAs and non-solicitation agreements. I know every shareholder agreement form that's out there. Back then, myself and Eddie were just brazen and we believed and yes we needed lots of people to show us the basics but i i feel bad for entrepreneurs now i hope somebody has created a startup kit that says here's a here are the 10 things you know so you don't go to jail <laughs> because we broke at least eight of them because we it was boring to us yeah right it was just boring to us it's funny you say that, and you and I talked a little bit beforehand. Salespeople that are really good, entrepreneurs that are really good, don't necessarily have the best accounting. <laughs> you know, you laughed at me when you look at my setup here. I mean, I can sit on a, a video editing program for, for, and I've done it, 10 right. hours straight. You sit me in front of a spreadsheet, yeah. despite the fact I'm a numbers guy when it comes to sales. I can't stand the functionality of a spreadsheet, yeah. and it just lulls me to sleep. But it's important right. to know it, right? It's really interesting. Um, it took me, again, I'm 54 now. It took me till I was 45 to admit this stuff. So I remember even before I was invited to be an owner of Caligro, I was like really clear. Here are the two things in life I'm good at. And there's only a couple. <laughs> and here's what I absolutely suck at. Yeah. And one of them is... Expense reports, terrible. Administrative work, terrible. Keeping receipts, getting better, but pretty desperate still after 20 years. Doing timesheets, I mean, M5 crowd, if they're still there, can remember. I couldn't keep a timesheet, right? Uh, so, yeah, some things are boring, but you've got to actually admit when you're an entrepreneur what you're good at. Yeah. And then you need to surround yourself with those people that are good at the things that you're not good at, but you need to admit that. And right now, I have no problem admitting what I'm good at, which is two or three things in life, and you can do well at that, and surround yourself to fill in the gaps with other people that are really good at other things. And, uh, you know, my accountant and CFO right now is probably laughing, saying everything he's saying is true, even at 54. I'll clip it out and send it to him. She will, nothing will be a surprise to Keeley. She will get it. But... The things that I'm good at, the two or three things that I feel like is my superpower, I'm really good at. And I love doing it, and I get energy from it. And when someone says you've been doing it for 12 hours, it feels like 12 minutes to me because I love it so much. It's interesting. Uh, I, I, I remember talking to, a, I'll mention him, uh, Cyril Bulgin, who created probably one of Newfoundland's incredible companies. They have 83 locations across They're a Canada. great client of ours. Rio and Eclipse. Absolutely. Amazing. He was going to Saskatchewan, and, uh, and his business, no, they just opened. It was announced they had eight locations, I think, in Saskatchewan. Right. I said, oh, I worked in Saskatchewan. How do you like Saskatchewan? And he looked at me, and he said, I don't know. I've never been there. <laughs> and I'm like, you just opened eight locations. You know what he said to me? Process, Jerry. Oh, systems. My business is built on process and systems. And I'll be honest with you, that scares me a little bit. Yeah. I'm this guy. I'm the business development guy. Sit me down in a process meeting, yeah. and I'm not the guy that you really need there. So, yeah. I but you know what, that. Jerry? The other thing I've realized is we do need some process around us. Even I need process around me as much as I struggle with it, because without those guardrails, 
you do tend to get very scattered and it confuses people. So um, I tend to welcome some process now, not a lot, but I respect it. And I always am admired by people that don't follow spreadsheets for every business decision. And the example that comes to mind is someone that we talked about off camera, John Steele with Jag Hotel. And I've got a couple of accounting friends of mine that see these two door people there moving doors every day and they're there to greet you. And they say, what a waste. Like there's technology to open up the doors and close them. And I know that John is very responsible with a spreadsheet, but I don't think he's completely spreadsheet driven because he knows having door people there creates an interaction and makes that first impression special at JAG. Yeah. And I get that nowhere else. And he's looked at the return on investment for that. And he ignores the accountants in that one. And he says, that's part of my brand. And I love that. Because I think I respect spreadsheets, but they can't dictate everything. Sometimes you just got to go off the spreadsheet and do something that is different. I'm not going to pick on accountants now, but two business <laughs> development guys. I'll never forget this gentleman who's very successful in St. John's was going through a tough time in the 80s when interest rates went through the roof. I won't mention who it is. Yeah. But he told me, he said, he sat down with his accountant and he said, there's no way you're going to survive. And I said, Jesus, what did you do? He said, I fired my accountant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he's still in business. And I'm like, I apologize. And I know there's a lot of accountants watch Gale Force Wins. We're not taking a shot no, at we him. Love but it. We need him. Listen, we need him. But I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a marriage, though, isn't there, of business skills. 100%. And you and Ed obviously yeah. married those skills. Let's move on to, um, so... You've created the Idea Factory. You're there, you said 17 16 years. 16 years. 16 years. Yeah. Done incredible work. Something else happened to you and you moved to another location. So tell yeah. us a little bit about the evolution of that. Yeah, this was, uh, you know, uh, by the way, the great thing about all of this is I've been left Idea Factory since 2016. They're still doing incredible. I own 0% of the Idea Factory now, and I can say how proud I am that I think that Ed and people like Chris Dunn and Adam Puttacombe, there's a whole new generation uh, of people that if I walk through Idea Factory today, I probably would not know more than three people, and they're still doing great. So first of all, no one's bigger than the brand, and maybe there's some people thought it was a big deal when Kevin Casey left, but... I'm here to tell you that that brand was always stronger than Kevin Casey, always. And that's due to Ed and that team down there that I'm super proud of. Um, you know, you do something for 16 years. I think I was feeling burnt out. I think the agency business for some uh, is hard. And I felt I was losing a little bit of my mojo and my energy. And I don't think that's fair to Ed or any of that team. And honestly, like all things in life, accidental collisions happen. So Jeff Legros and I uh, were down in Myrtle Beach, and Jeff is the majority owner of Caligro with Rod Vatcher. And at 1 o'clock in the morning, we got into a conversation, and he said, 
I would love to have you on side with us. Um, you understand about branding and I feel like we got to create a sales culture and we have more of an order taking culture, not a sales culture. And I was really honest with Jeff, my go for no strategy, which is I've never read an insurance policy, even though I've been insured with you for a long time. That's someone else's job. And isn't it really boring? Like, it sounds like it's boring. You're not, but <laughs> you said that, boring? that too. I did because, you know, <laughs> your was, career is boring. <laughs> yeah. And I was being it does honest have that because about it. Yeah. But the short story is for some reason we kept talking. Yeah. And I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, why am I paying attention to this conversation that myself and Jeff are having over two or three months now? So I was really uh, straight up with Ed and it was a tough conversation. And I just said, listen, you deserve a business partner that's all in. And I feel like part of my fire is not stoked like it used to be. But I am not going to leave till we find someone that you're comfortable with. And we did. That was Vanessa McBay, who was incredible. Um, and Jeff, I, and Rod came to an agreement, and I became an owner of a business I thought I would never be in, which is an insurance brokerage, which is, um, you know, one in four businesses in Newfoundland are customers of Caligro now. And my first day going in there was the same feeling I had when I started the Idea Factory. I was so unsure of the decision I just made. Yeah. And now I'm 47. And my whole brand was defined about the Idea Factory, and people are thinking I'm going through some midlife crisis. I was like, one of them. I reached out to you. You did. Like, Lots of people on? did. Why are you doing this? And um, my reason was I wasn't all in anymore, and I believed in something that Jeff Legros said to me. And I also said, I know when I'm uncomfortable, I'm really good. And I said, I wonder if 47 is too old to be uncomfortable. And here I am at 54, and I absolutely love what I do every day, and it's not boring. It is I haven't had a boring day. So I'm really glad Jeff and I had that conversation at a bar, and it turned into what it is because I think it, I needed that. And I think Idea Factory needed different energy around them too. So I think it was a win-win. It's amazing, though, isn't it, to think about you questioning yourself at 47. Am I too old to be uncomfortable? At 47? Yeah. I think that's the world conditioning us like that. I was lucky enough to interview uh, Roy Parsons over the weekend, yes. who uh, became the, uh, you know, he's inducted into the Hall of Fame for the Newfoundland Library Construction Association. 80 years old. Wow. And he talked a little bit about, you know, being uncomfortable and doing things. Yeah. And he's 80, and he's got four businesses running. What, Kevin, why, what are we going to do? You've got a few dollars saved. Twiddle your thumbs and go right. sip margaritas on the beach. Nah. Boring. Very boring, yeah. Um, you know, first of all, the Caligro team knew that I was an outsider. Yeah. And, you know, people don't go into the brokerage business as an owner if you haven't put your time in. So, again, part of your imposter syndrome that we all feel, even though I am confident, we all have insecurities, I felt like, do I even deserve to be here? And am I going to get called out? And have I made another crazy decision in my life that finally is going to come back to haunt me? And they were so welcoming to the outsider view. And they made me feel welcome. And I fought through those knots in the gut that I had the first 
three or four months of the Idea Factory scene if we were real or was it a side hustle, um, that it's become my second home. And, you know, I'm in no rush. Like, I, I love it every day. Uh, I still make mistakes every day. Uh, but I just want to grow st something and I want people around me who are the same way. And when I see you starting this, there's a little piece of me when I walk in here today and see your setup, it actually makes me jealous because I am now in a mature business where it all kind of runs like a, a, a polished, mature company. But the days that I remember the most, Jerry, are the days that yeah. you're feeling right now, starting something new and different. And I love it. So I'm just telling you that that feeling, that, that knot in the gut, but the pounding heart, I'm a little envious of you because it's a great feeling. And I try to treat every day, even at Idea Factory, with a bit of startup mentality. And I like to break things apart. And I don't like to believe my own headlines. And I have a lot of insecurities that everyone else struggle with. But I just don't want to be stuck in neutral. I appreciate that because uh, I understand it. I, I do. Um, what I'm nurturing here has been 30 years in the making and it's pretty emotional for me to be given a chance uh, <clears throat> to do this um, and I see what you're trying to do with with Cal to grow and I understand that um, and I, it, it, there's a challenge sometimes I find when you're working with others who don't have that same fire and I tell you one thing that I've tried to do is rein in the passion because I know I can be overwhelming and it's just um, yeah that being said you know, you've got to live. You've got to live your life, don't you? You've got to do your thing, you know? You do. So, uh, I mean, listen, you were one of the people that reached out. So were 100 others when I left uh, the business that defined me at that point in 2016. But you do have to ignore the naysayers because these are the people that like the certainty of 830 to 430. And God bless them. We need those people. We need those people who get that work done every day. I was never an 8.30, 4.30 person. I'm still not. My mind still drifts at four and five in the morning. Uh, but I do believe you need mentors. And I want to talk about this because- Yes, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. The peep, you can't ask someone to be your mentor. That would be an awkward way for it to happen. Uh, mentors don't even know they're mentoring you. So, I'm telling you, when I made this move in 2016, it took me months, and I changed my mind 12 times. And without people like Frank Coleman, Dean McDonald, Charlie Oliver, Kevin Fleming, I wouldn't have done it. I just, I needed the nudge. I really believe as, as much as I'm an entrepreneur, you sometimes need those people to give you that extra push saying, I think it is, what's the worst that can happen? What's the absolute worst that can happen? And those people helped me make that decision and I didn't ask them to be my mentors. It's just we've developed this reciprocate, reciprocating thing throughout the years where I helped them with stuff or they had their kids as work term students or maybe I met with their kids when they were struggling in university because you know, a father or mother can't talk to their kids about that, but I've talked to some of these mentors and their kids about it yeah. because 
that's the only thing I could give them. They're so successful. I don't know what to give them except my time and maybe how I ask how I can help them. But these mentors, uh, everyone needs them, but you don't need to ask for them. I mean, Judy Sparks, Ann Whalen. Ann Whalen I met on a Facebook Messenger chat when we were both kind of feeling lost in 2018 about our business and we were wondering what are we going to do when uh, when this whole oil crash happened and that's how I met Anne. I met her over Facebook Messenger because we were going through the same business moment at 2 o'clock in the morning while everyone was asleep and Anne and I had become great friends because of that moment that we shared. We joined a conversation in each other's head. I didn't ask her to be my mentor. She didn't even know I was her, that she was my mentor. I never ever told her that till now. But all those people helped me and, and I hope that maybe I'm mentoring people and I don't even know I'm doing it. Appreciate your vulnerability here right now because I think what people see, Kevin Casey, he's at the Board of Trade, he created a company, he's now at Calagro. I think people that are struggling and let's, let's face it, now, just coming out of mm. pandemic, business people in particular have been through hell and back. Right. You know, I really appreciate you sharing the fact that you struggled because it's not, this is not, we, you know, again, gale force winds. This is not a panacea. This is right. life. This is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And despite how much success you may have had, no matter how much resources you have behind you, you still have to figure out what's moving forward right yeah. well again i think no one wants to see people talk about how successful they are for an hour straight i actually believe the the best thing and you know maybe that's why i'm writing this book that i wish i didn't tell everyone i was writing because that puts pressure <laughs> on yourself too i started this in 20 late 2020 i wanted to write a book about what's the proper way to sell for people that aren't comfortable selling because I think there's a lot of people, business owners, uh, by the way, 90% of small business people have less than 10 employees. And that's everywhere, US, UK, Newfoundland. They don't have sales departments. They don't have pipelines. No. They're the person who's got to run the business and sell. The person I want to help at some point in my life is the person that has to sell, but selling isn't their thing. Yeah. But they want to be good at it but I don't want to turn them into a professional seller. But that's kind of where I want to go maybe in the future, and that's why this book was to the version of myself in, at 31 that was the guy going around with a sledgehammer selling. And yeah, it was working, but man, I, w I didn't feel very good sometimes. Even yeah. after the wins, I didn't feel yeah. good. And I also got used and abused and treated like the hired help at times. But guess what? I allowed that to happen yeah. because I welcomed that and I took part in RFPs that had no chance of winning. But there was 1% chance and I went down that road. And I put my team through hundreds of hours of work on RFP. And now, to me, it's RIP, rest in peace for RFPs. I don't do them no. unless I'm the incumbent because that's who they're built for. For most cases. Well, I never did a lot of RFPs in my entire career, but I did a little bit in the agency I worked with. And I, I agree with you. I didn't enjoy They're horrible. it. Like, you know, the parameters were not set. They didn't fit. And you're trying to fit yourself into them. And I'm like, what are you doing? There's 7 you know? billion people in the world. I don't need to do RFPs. No. I would rather find someone that's got a problem 
be honest with them and or her and see if there's a problem I can solve. And if not, there's an abundance mindset. Next. That's why getting to know fast is so liberating as a salesperson because you will act better and you'll look at yourself in the mirror and it will save your soul because you don't act like you need every sale anymore. It's amazing, you know, I can't help but reflect and I, you know, I'm bringing it back to myself, but you know, I drive around this city and I started in 1995 selling advertising and I know the communities that I worked in, you know, CBS, right. and I, I try to tell my boys, you know, this used to be my sales territory. Do you know what I, I would literally knock on every door, unannounced. Knock on, knock on every door. I know. You know, uh, not houses. This was business to business. Isn't it funny how now if we got a knock on the door, you text someone first, say you're coming over? Like, <laughs> no one knocks on doors. No. Like, if I drop into someone, I'm texting, like, Jerry's it okay to yeah. come over now? Then you knock on the door. <laughs> well, how many times did you see a sign on a building door, no solicitation? And I'm like, Psh, ignore that, go through. Yeah. Um, Kevin, I just think that you know this journey that you've brought us on today is just wonderful. Uh, you know, there's so much more we can delve into. I do want to ask a little bit about uh, where you got. You've kind of alluded to it. What's over the horizon? Where are you where are you taking this? You're yeah. 54 years of age. You've got probably another 35 years in you. Yeah. According to Roy, Roy Parsons. Roy Parsons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. I think if it's still fun, I'm okay. So I love what I'm doing now. Uh, I love trying to grow a business that I really was never part of for a long time. Um, I do believe part of writing the book for me has been therapeutic for understanding what I saw like before. And again, I always put this in my head about how would my mom and dad feel about the way I sold in some of the early years when I did have a lot of success? I just think there's a more dignified way to sell. The book is important to me. I'm really struggling with it because it's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. I should have just learned to play guitar because I thought the F chord was hard, but this is hell. <laughs> um, how many pages do you think you're at now? I think I pro probably wrote three books already. Yeah. The problem is there's an inner critic when you write a book that you, one or one, do I even deserve to be writing this? And two, am I writing it in a way that's going to help the person that I was when I was 31? And is there enough of those people that are hard selling but don't want to sell like that, but they don't know any other way to sell because no one ever taught us properly, right? Um, so I think the book is important. Uh, you know, my business partners have been very supportive of it, uh, of me doing this. I think it's something that I need to turn my creative brain on to something else. And maybe in the future, uh, I really like have being the champion of small business. Maybe I need to go all the way back to when I was a small business. And for those people that don't have sales departments or a sales manager or a sales leader, maybe I'd like to work with them and show them how to sell without selling out. Yeah. Well, I think that's a wonderful thing. Someone asked me, um, you know, why, why are you doing this, Jared? Gale Force wins. And I said, you know what? And I'm going to mention someone. A guy like Tom Powell, who mm. owns Pizza Express up in the Torbay yeah. Road Mall. 600 square foot, maybe 700 square feet. It's, it's one thing, you know, to have, uh, you know, we talked to a man in Bedford Basin who created a $2.4 billion gold mine. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Incredibly uh, inspiring. 
but Tom Powell inspires me just as much. So I think I get what you're saying because the sales and sales now is so sophisticated. When I first started, <laughs> you know what my training was? Here's the yellow pages. Some of the people watching this won't even know what the yellow pages are. Yeah, it was kidding. Remember that yeah. book that I was printed? Go through it, make phone calls. Yeah. And now the sophistication level of LinkedIn and, and all of that is, uh, is, 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 is a challenge, right? It is. So my last point on tech, because you're right, it has changed. But what has not changed is human behavior. And if you act in a way that's going to create sales resistance, people are going to lie to you. They're going to be untruthful. They're going to withhold information. And again, I'll bring it back to my dad. My dad was an amazing human being. But even he lied to salespeople. So I'm just telling you, if my dad lied to salespeople, everyone's lying to salespeople. And they're doing it because they got a, it's a form of self-protection. Yeah. So... We need to behave differently. I don't care if it's on LinkedIn, because if someone reached out to me on LinkedIn to connect, and eight seconds later they pitch slap me, <laughs> they're done. Uh, you've got to just do it. I don't know how some salespeople honestly even date it. Like, what did you do? It's like, it was really nice to meet you. Can I bring my toothbrush over? And I can't wait for you to meet my mother. Like, it's so strange, but when they go into a sales role, they change who they are. And I'm always amazed when I deal with people who I talk to, like you and I are, and I put them in a selling situation, and they turn into Mr. Roboto. And I said, what happened? Like, just have a conversation with somebody. So it doesn't matter about technology. Human, human be, humans don't change, um, and everyone loves to buy, but they hate to be sold to. So stop selling. Yeah. Wow. Um, I usually ask for a piece of advice, but I think you've just ended it right there. I will say that uh, in my experience, Zoom has been incredibly good for sales. Yeah. Uh, one day in particular comes to mind, we did 11 proposals. 11. Wow. With meetings. I went from my bedroom upstairs down here and I left at midnight. I couldn't do that if you're going around to a coffee shop. Yeah. That being said, solidifying the future relationship has had to happen this way. Yeah. Right? So the evolution of digital sales, uh, yeah. you know, you're right. You've got to be able to make a connection. It's one thing for, you know, we built Gale Force Winds on Zoom. Right. Being able to sit here and it's have huge. the nuances of our language and our... Just you don't get sense. this on Zoom, no. right? So you got to accept that you need both, but you got to multi-thread. you got to do it all. And um, I think if salespeople stop thinking about their product and live with the problem that they solve, and maybe the problem that someone doesn't even know, they're going to just feel people be more accepting. Because when you're trying to sell your product, it's boring when you're trying to solve a problem for somebody it's about you now that's interesting so when someone says i'm not interested i can guarantee you they're saying you're not interesting so be more interesting well we are we've been talking for an hour and 15 wow, minutes and fast. it feels like five minutes i'm going to say this i am so grateful to inbev for doing what they did <laughs> making you uncomfortable at yeah. 31 and continue to be uncomfortable my friend you've done a great job well and i look around here and this guy is uncomfortable <laughs> right now very 
at his age, which is we're 56. around the same age, and congratulations on being uncomfortable because we'll talk about this years from now, and it is emotional because I know how much this means to you. He was showing me so proud of what this was and a logo that he created and where the name came from. And I remember being that person. You're trying to make me get emotional here now. Well, I miss part of that, right? Mm -hmm. That's the part of the startup that you miss. And um, there's a lot of people out there that don't think it's their turn to do what Jerry's doing and what I did. I'm just telling you, it's always been your turn. It has always been your turn. So step out of line. Again, thank you, Kevin. Step out of line. Just do it. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Thank you for tuning in to Gale Force Winds. That's Gale Force Winds, W-I-N-S dot com.